So if you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Acts 16, 16. By the way, good morning, church family. So today's message, it was one of those sermons, uh, it took a while to figure out where it was supposed to go because there's a lot that can be drawn out of this passage. And it went through a few title changes. Um, and uh, I, I really, I had a hard time figuring out what points we were supposed to spend the most time on. And then I had a hard time determining where to stop because this is kind of one long story and there's so much good in this story. And so I wasn't quite sure. So, so if it seems like we're ending at an odd place, that's okay. Just consider it a cliffhanger, you know? And that'll make more sense when we get into next week's message. By the way, if you're here today, uh, I guess maybe plan to come next week too. Um, so you can catch the rest of this, this story. And, uh, but, but this morning... What we're going to do is we're going to read a passage and see how Paul and company are an example of how to handle a tough situation in the best way possible. So I also have a disclaimer. Um, If you're you're here this morning, you're expecting to learn a detailed step-by-step approach like how to weather adversity in my particular situation, that's not what this is going to be. Okay, But I do believe each of us here, we can learn from the apostles, we can learn from their example here, and then we can apply that into our own context. And so if you're, if you're not familiar with this yet, uh, this story, I want to encourage you, don't read ahead, okay? Don't read ahead yet, but stick with me as we go. Um, usually we read through the whole passage first, and then we go back and, and we digest it a chunk at a time. We're going to do it differently today. We're going to take it in sequence, just like the people in the story took it. So uh, we're going to open with prayer, so why don't you bow your heads. Father God, thank you so much for the chance to be here this morning preaching your word to your people, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's exciting. Um, Lord, I I know that that I'm an incredibly flawed individual, and and yet you use broken people uh, to to reach others. And Father, uh, we're all broken. I pray, God, that you um, will remind us that that your light, as it said, your light shines through the cracks, um, and let people see it, Father, and let us... Draw folks to you by, by being as Christ-like as possible. Lord, I thank you for um, the opportunity to be able to be here with my brothers and sisters. And um, Father, just to, to share the truth of the gospel and to, uh, to see the light go on is a beautiful thing. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, all right, so quick recap. The Apostle Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey, and he's been traveling with a guy named Silas. Uh, Silas was kind of his, his co-worker. Uh, he was with Timothy, who was sort of his protege, a ministry guy in training, missionary in training. Uh, and then also Luke, the guy who wrote Luke, and also wrote this book, Acts. Uh, he is a, he's an eyewitness to these events that he's recording for this particular part of the, the book. And they've traveled across Asia. We looked at a map a couple weeks ago. Um, and then they crossed the Aegean Sea. They stopped at, I think it was called Samothrace, this little bitty island. Well, it's a little bitty on the map. It's probably pretty big. But anyway, they stopped at this island. They went on the, to Macedonia they're, uh, because of the vision that Paul received. Remember that? And so they're there at a place called Philippi. And last week, we read about Lydia's conversion. You remember Lydia, the worker in purple? We, we read about her conversion to the way, which she recognized as the fulfillment of her traditionally Jewish faith. Jesus being the promised Messiah who was to come and to save God's people. And we're going to talk more about that later, but for now let's get into the text. As we're going to the place of prayer, remember this is the riverside where they met Lydia uh, and the other women and they shared the gospel with them. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. 
she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, there's, there's a lot of info packed into this little section here, and so we're going to unpack some of it. First of all, what does the text here, what does it tell us about the girl? And there's, there's three things that we can know about her. First, she was a slave, which meant that she had probably either been sold into uh, indentured servitude in order to pay a debt, or uh, it's possible she'd been captured in war. Um, we also know she was possessed by an evil spirit. And we can, we can assume it's evil because it wasn't the Spirit of God, and it wasn't an angel of the Lord. And in fact, the, the spirit um, that she was possessed by, according to the Greek, the phrase is pneuma puthona, or the spirit of python, okay? Which is, python was another name for Apollo, uh, one of their mythical Greek gods. Um, and and uh, the people that were referred to, is actually a class of people referred to as having the spirit of python, and they were allegedly, they spoke from their bellies, and, and, you know, and, and other weird you know, anatomical things. And we can probably look at that and say some of that would have been ventriloquism, maybe faked. Um, some of it, like in this case, it would have been the spirit speaking through that person rather than the person speaking. Um, but at any rate, she had the spirit of fortune telling, and apparently it was in control of her. So in this, in this sense, she was a slave in two ways. Physically, yes, but also spiritually, which is far more destructive and sad than being a slave physically. We also know she was exploited by her owners for money. Okay, despite what had to have been a, just a horrible existence for this poor child, you know, having her body used as a vessel for a demon, her masters, her owners were making money by fleecing gullible people that believed what this evil spirit said when they claimed to tell the future. So they were getting rich off of her misery. Okay? Now, regarding this, this spirit... What do we know about it? We know, simply put, it knew who the apostles were. And we know that it knew what their message was. And we know that it knew that the message they spoke was true and based by the actions of this demon, this evil spirit, it felt threatened by them. And so before we continue uh, on that note, I want to I ask you, what was the message that Paul and company were proclaiming? Thank you. Can some more of you say that? The gospel. Great, of course. The message was the gospel. And what is the gospel? You know, according to, to Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, Romans 1.16. And as even the evil spirits had to admit, it was the message of salvation for those who would receive it. And the content of this message, you know, Paul has shown over and over, was that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that His death on the cross paid the price that we earned with our sin. And that is the wrath of God. And he also preached that that same Jesus rose from the dead as the proof that God had not only verified everything Christ said about himself and about his father were true, but it also was, was this, this amazing proof that we can be risen from the grave as well. That we can receive the eternal life that Christ promised. It was proof God accepted his sacrifice and everyone who repents and turns to him in faith can be saved 
from hell can receive eternal life. As the Apostle Peter said, you may remember uh, Acts 4.12. The Apostle Peter says, there is no other name. He's referring to Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Well, that message is, is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive, as we've discussed before. And it's a threat to worldly powers. Now, now why is it a threat? Why, why would it be a threat to, to the world if the gospel is true, which it is? See, most people who don't believe the truth, who don't believe in God, they either, they either don't want Him to exist, because then they'd be accountable, or they want to be Him. They want control. And the gospel message takes away any perceived spiritual authority that someone might think that they have. And this is precisely why I believe the spirit and the girl was threatened. And so it began to advertise on the disciples' behalf. And you might think it's odd that a demon would speak truth, you know, especially one that is so dangerous to itself. But I think there are several reasons why it may have done what it did. First of all, it may have intended to either uh, deceive Paul or, or at least confuse him by not revealing that it was an evil spirit right away. And secondly, it might have been trying to act as though it had some control over the situation by posing as, you know, an agent, so to speak. Hey, everybody, listen to these guys, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, But thirdly, it it may have understood that it could draw attention away from the true messengers of salvation by by, by posing as one of them, right? Because after all, Satan is really good about taking the truth and mixing in some lies and using it to bring death Instead of life, I mean, just ask Adam and Eve, right? Whatever the case, Paul didn't seem too concerned about it at first, but that changed. I mean, maybe the spirit became more aggressive or more distracting. I've, I've asked my brother Matt to uh, saw this illustration recently, and I've asked him to come up here really quickly and help me uh, with an illustration. Um, let's say I'm going to tell you. Let's say I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and the promised Messiah who died on the cross. Go ahead, Matt. Go for it. So Jesus, He is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. And He... And when He rose from the dead... He was able to give us the opportunity. Thanks. <laughs> well, you know, typecasting. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, thank you, Matt. Um, so you can see how that would become annoying or a problem. And eventually, Paul got to the place where he was like, I'm done. You know, he just got just, uh, un- it was unbearable for him because Paul. Uh, well, Luke writes, and he became, he says, having become greatly annoyed, which I like that. That's apparently in the Bible to become greatly annoyed. He turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out in that very hour. Folks, what does this tell us about God? What's that? You can't fight against, well, you can try, can't you? But guess what you're going to do? Fail, right? First of all, we see that God is clearly pro-people. And that he, he wants people to have the opportunity to hear the message that can save us. 
His love for people is also evident in that he revealed to Paul that the Spirit was an evil one, and thereby giving Paul the ability, he was led to, to, to break this, to the spiritual bondage that this poor little girl was under, and to cast out this demon, to force it to leave her, which shows us God is also obviously anti-Satan, because he casts out Satan. And certainly Paul didn't didn't have the authority to drive out demons in his own name, but only in the name of Jesus Christ, meaning that that the ultimate power and authority to command and control spirits belongs to the Lord. Now, folks, if you have the Holy Spirit in you the way that Paul does, you don't need chanting and holy water and, and, and you know the arcane rituals to get rid of a demon. You can evict that sucker in the name of Jesus Christ. We have the authority. It's not in our name. But we have the authority because the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in all who have received Christ. And Paul used it. Thirdly, God doesn't need nor does he want the devil's endorsement. And even when Jesus walked the earth in bodily form, he didn't allow the demons to testify that he was the Holy One of God because God doesn't want the testimony of devils. He wants the the, the testimony from the lips and the lives of born-again believers in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we know through the Word of God, we know it's the gospel message that saves, but we also know that it is our lives that give credibility to our profession. And so if you're you know, sitting there wondering, hey, when are we going to get to the part where we talk about handling adversity? Here you go. I'm about to share rule number one, okay? Like we've seen with Paul and his friends, and as we saw with Jesus himself in the Gospels, our privilege and our obligation as Christians is to always do good. Always do good. In other words, always be quick to serve others, to help those in need, to, to encourage and to edify one another. You know, have, have open hands. Always strive to, to do what Christ would do in a given situation. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that, that's great, but what does that have to do with handling adversity? <laughs> Friends, this rule has to do with everything. Because we are called to to do good at all times, whether it's easy or whether it's extremely difficult. And practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it does make progress, doesn't it? Practice makes progress. So whether you're currently in a situation um, where you're struggling, or whether you're not currently in a situation where you're struggling, always, always, always do good. If you want some scriptures on that, there's a bunch. Um, we'll give you just three. In 2 Thessalonians, Christians are told that we should not grow weary in doing good. In other words, it should be our habit. It should be our default setting as Christians, as believers, to, to serve one another in love and to care for others and to try to meet their needs, to, to honor God with our lives. And part of the reason for that is expressed in, in uh, 1 Peter 2 when he writes that it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in other words, we have the ability to prove people wrong when they say that Christians are just a bunch of 
you know, condemning, judgy, cotton-headed ninny-muggins or whatever, you know, this... It, it, whenever they say that, we should be able to show them that they're wrong by being salt, by being light, to the point that they can't help but take notice. And Galatians 6 kind of drives it home with this instruction. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And by the way, that includes people that treat us poorly, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, meaning other believers. So we should take care of one another really, really well. And then we should let that, that compassion and that energy, it should bleed over. It should, should overflow onto our neighbors and onto our, our communities, into our culture. That's what Christians are called to do, good. Of course, sometimes uh, what we know really is good will not be seen as good by those who are degenerate rather than regenerate. And this story continues with a good example of that. But when their owners saw, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because remember, she was, she was their meal ticket. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. I want us to back up and, and just for a second make sure we're tracking with what's happening here, okay? What good was being done by Paul and company? At least two things that we know they were doing. What's the most obvious one? Sharing the gospel. Thank you, yes. So they're preaching the gospel and, and they're, they're pre you know, Jesus, Jesus Christ fulfilled every messianic prophecy and the entire Old Testament and his identity as the Christ, that's what they're preaching. They're preaching his, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, and they're proclaiming this. You know, that's why they went in the first place, to spread the gospel, to spread the good news. And it's true. In many of the places that Paul went, the gospel was the reason for the hostility from his opponents. But here it's different. You may wonder, well, why is it different? I'm going to give you some background here. If you went to, um, to Israel... In that time, you know, to, to Jerusalem or to the, uh, among the, the Jewish colonies when the dispersion had occurred, um, there were a lot of people who understood that the worship of Christ was the worship of Christ, and there were others who believed it was blasphemy. And that caused a lot of friction. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you see this through the lens of, uh, of the traditional Jewish faith, because they had grown up, they, they knew Yahweh, they knew that they were of the people of Moses, right? And so if, if they, they didn't understand, though, that Jesus was, he was the fulfillment, he's the completion of everything that they've been looking for. But a, a, many of the Jews did. Many of them did understand that. Almost the entire church, you remember, until Acts chapter 10, was Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ. And believing Jews recognized that Jesus was. They understood he's the culmination of all these messianic prophecies. They've been waiting for this guy. And he came. They understood this is the one. And they knew that worship, worshiping him was glorifying God. But these believers were still in the minority in the Israelite territories. And so, so Paul didn't get a whole lot of traction in those areas. You remember there was a lot of adversity that he had to deal with. But out here in the Greek-speaking world, the people were a lot more, and I'm going to put quotes around this, a lot more tolerant 
of other people's faith because they had a whole bunch of so-called gods that they worshipped. They weren't monotheistic. They were very polytheistic. And the Gentiles lacked the the background of knowing Yahweh as the one true God. And so, so those who didn't believe the gospel, they just didn't care. It wasn't that they were actively hostile. hostile. They, they just didn't care. Anyway, so they're preaching the gospel. That's what Paul and Silas were doing, which of course is good. But the other good that Paul specifically did was they cast out a demon, which caused this girl's release from spiritual bondage. I mean, that's a very concrete good deed, wouldn't you say? To set someone free from a demon? Yeah? I mean, the evidence is really obvious. This, this girl changed from being essentially a megaphone for an evil spirit to just being a child again. And the irony here is is when we realize which of these two good deeds caused the offense in this particular case. It wasn't the preaching of the gospel. It was the little girl's exorcism. Her release from the clutches of Satan was offensive to her handlers. And we're going to take just a few minutes here. We're going to look at their excuses. Okay, they said, these men are Jews, which was basically pointing out that that they were outsiders. You know, they're not like us. They do things differently. And being a Jew wasn't illegal. And the people that that knew this, you know, that that were dragging Paul and Silas up to the the marketplace magistrates, they knew that. Okay, They, they wanted to make sure to hold it against them anyway, that they were Jewish. And that kind of scapegoating, unfortunately, is still around today. And then they accused them of doing what... What amounts to charges of disturbing the peace, which honestly, pretty vague, right? It doesn't seem like Paul and Silas were really doing anything to cause an uproar, does it? In fact, they fixed a shouting person. And then they claimed that the apostles were violating the law and that they were, they said, they're advocating customs that aren't legal for us to practice. And we don't know exactly what was being taught there. We can't say for certain that these are all false you know, accusations, but... Based on what we know, seems like some trumped up stuff, doesn't it? But you know what the truth is? It's simply this. When Paul told that evil spirit to take a hike, it punched them in the wallet. That was the problem. They took a financial hit. And friends, there will be times when the gospel message itself is going to be offensive to people. You know, I mean, not many people like to hear, hey, you're going to go to hell if you continue believing and doing what you've been believing and doing. Very few people want to accept that they're not good enough for God to allow them in His presence. Very few people want to believe that, that we desperately need to be cleansed from our sins by a Savior because God's standard is too high for anyone to achieve except the one who did achieve it himself. But there are some folks in the world, they couldn't care less about what you believe until it starts costing them money. And that's when the knives come out. Consider some of the cultural norms that Christianity has opposed throughout history and then then the financial stakes for those industries when Christians are winning. For instance, chattel slavery, prostitution, drug trafficking, human trafficking, abortion on demand. Pornography, it's usually those industries that make the most money from evil who hate Christians the most when we speak up. And as frustrating as it is, I think it's fair to say that rule number two is to expect suffering for doing good sometimes. 
I mean, like it or not, it's the truth. Jesus himself said so. You know, speaking to his own disciples in John 15, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says, remember the word that I spoke to you. A master, excuse me, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I mean, there's no more reliable source of truth than he who is himself the truth, the way, the life. But, you know, I, I, I can tell you that it wasn't just for his audience at that time either. You know, it wasn't just for those 11 guys in the room. 1 Timothy 2 tells us, indeed, all who, des- who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then Peter's letter in, uh, to the church warns us in chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. It's a solid, you know, it's a reminder that Christ himself was hated for the good that he did, including when he presented the good news about himself. He was hated for that. And when we suffer for doing good, the Bible teaches that we are rewarded for undergoing the test. If you go back and you read the, the end of 1 Peter 2, there's a lot more details about how that, that works. But for now, I want to I let's just soak in the fact that we should expect to suffer for doing good sometimes. Just get that through your head. Sometimes it's going to be for speaking truth. Sometimes it's going to be for doing the right thing. And bear in mind, we are always to do good in speech and in deed, but discernment is is always also important in knowing when to speak or to do a specific good. Okay, Because sometimes a particular thing may not be our, our purview to do or to address. And I struggle with this because I think I have a pretty sensitive conscience um, some might call it a guilty conscience. <laughs> and, and so it's often difficult to leave something unsaid or undone. But I'm, I'm learning when to listen to the Holy Spirit about when it's my, my good to do. And so always practice saying and, and doing good in general and always seek the Spirit's guidance on, uh, on when and what to do in specific circumstances. So it's a good rule of thumb. Be open to the Lord's leading. And if you're conflicted, Seek the counsel of trusted believers and find other good to do in the meantime because we're always to do good. Anyway, back to the story. This next part is rough, okay? Luke says, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened to their feet in the stocks. Wow. That's pretty awful. I mean, that, that, that's a terrible list. So, so I want us to just kind of enumerate here what's going on. We're going we're gonna to put it in slightly more generic terms. It starts by saying, the crowd joined in attacking them. So for starters, they were ganged up on. And that's no big surprise, right? I mean, if there's any tendency that's evident all across the world it's how we like to just pile on when we see or hear something that we don't like. 
know, whether it's in the middle of a riot or uh, a social media debate, there's this mob mentality that it, it infects a lot of humanity when we see somebody in the hot seat. And even Christians are susceptible to this sometimes, you know, and, and we really shouldn't be because we have the mind of Christ. But worldly people tend to, to rely on, on subjective things for truth, like public opinion or like their own emotions. It makes it really easy to slip into, into hive think. So don't be surprised if people pile on you when you're trying to do good. Uh, we also see that the apostles were humiliated when the crowd stripped them. You know, one method that's used to discredit people who speak up about what's right is uh, to dig their own skeletons out of the closet. I think uh, an unsaved person might point to your past and claim your, your previous mistakes or, or even your recent mistakes and, and say, you know, this, this recent failure, this, this invalidates what you say. But here's the thing. Um, can we agree that truth is objective? Yes. Okay, good. And if truth is objective and if good with a capital G, is whatever conforms to the, the, conforms to the nature of Christ, then you can be a major screw-up and still be right about God. And trust me, I know this from personal experience, okay? You can also be a major screw-up and be right with God through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, amen? I mean, there's, there's plenty in my own, my own past and probably in my future that, that could be used against me. You know, uh, our mistakes, guys, our mistakes can, can bring shame on the gospel and they can cast doubt on our intentions, but we can't let that stop us from always trying to do what's right and from speaking truth. The world is going to try to humiliate us. But the very things that they can point to and mock are the very things that Christ died for and purchased our forgiveness for. Handle it like a boss because you've been bought and you've been paid for by the precious blood of Christ, okay? Next, Luke says, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods, so they were abused. And that's something we should probably assume as a possibility for us, too. I mean, if, if we're expected to suffer for doing good sometimes, you know, we should, we should assume that it's going to, at, at some times, take some form of abuse. It may not come in the form of a physical beating, but abuse comes in many ways. Mocking, hatred, false accusations, uh, slandering you to other people. Um, it, it can come through... Uh, rejection. But don't lose sight of the fact that these guys were literally tortured for doing something good. And it says next they're thrown into prison. You know, it's, it's actually happened as recently as last year and as close by as Canada that a Christian pastor was incarcerated for refusing to keep his church closed down during the pandemic. And this, this is well after the facts about COVID were, were much more clear. His, his congregation, they complied at first, you know, which is probably the right thing to do in that place. You know, we, we did the same thing. We complied at first, and then we realized, you know what? It's a lot more important for us to gather together than to avoid possibly getting sick. 
And that's what he did. And when he stood up for it, he spent over a month in jail. And that's not nearly as distant a threat as we might think. And then it says the jailer put them in the inner prison, which is probably a dungeon, um, you know, something even light has trouble getting into. And he was told to keep them securely in the jail, so he put them as deep in the prison as he possibly could. And by the way, keep this, keep this jailer on your mental back burner, okay? He's a very important character later in the chapter. Um, the effect, I would think, on a typical person being stuck in an inner prison that's already in a prison is going to be to abandon all hope. And I think it's fair to say that, that they were disenchanted and probably disenfranchised. I mean, if you're not familiar with that, that's kind of a big word, but it means they weren't allowed to exercise their rights. They, they didn't even get a fair trial, according to, to Roman law. And so I think it wouldn't be, we shouldn't be too surprised if that happens to us as Christians as a result for standing up for the Lord. You know, already, this is incredibly recent, already the U.S. government, via executive order, has tried to force doctors to perform elective abortions in states where it's still legal. This is a clear violation of personal rights. But we as Christians should be mentally prepared for the fact that our legal rights, they might be stripped away at some point because of our faith. And if that happens, we have to trust God and obey Him, not people. Finally, we see that Paul and Silas were immobilized. It wasn't enough, apparently, you know, to put them in the inner prison of the prison, but they also had their feet placed in stocks, meaning they, they couldn't even attend to their own basic needs, like getting up to use the restroom. And perhaps the time will come when, when Christians will be simil, similarly penalized, you know, as far as, as being immobilized, not allowed to exercise freedom, to, to do things that, you know, uh, things that support our families, um, you know, the, the way that we've been blessed to so far. It's already happening in, in some places. You go to communist countries, and, and Christians are already under thumb of the government. They're not allowed to, to have certain jobs and things like that. Um, we're seeing evidence of this in places that are developing deeper hostility toward the faith. And so the question then is, what should we do? And folks, I, I honestly think the answer is going to be different for different Christians. Because as we, as we feel led by the Spirit to engage the culture or, or to disengage from it, you know, in different ways, there's going to be different ways that we approach this issue when it comes. But one clue that every Christian can take from Paul and Silas when it comes to dealing with adversity is that in the midst of all of this terrible stuff, they were still praising God. If you continue reading here, it's, you know, despite the fact they, they've, been, they've been attacked, they've been stripped, they've been beaten, they're experiencing the loss of their rights and their freedom and their dignity, they were giving glory to God. I mean, verse 25 says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Y'all, that's what it looks like to handle adversity like a boss. Praising God in the dark, in pain, in stocks. Praising God. Always do good even though you can expect to suffer sometimes for doing good and then praise God even through the suffering. 
And we're going to end on this verse. Like I said, it's a bit of a cliffhanger. If you've never heard the story before, but we're going to save that for next week. In the meantime, I want you to look at these, these three rules. Look at those and internalize them. Can we do that? Let me give you a few seconds. Look at those. Always do good. Expect to suffer for doing good sometimes. And praise God, even through the suffering. You know, can we, can we do that? Instead of, instead of always finding something to complain about, you know, can we, can we repent of our negativity and our self-centeredness and, and be, be thankful in the midst of suffering? Because friends, listen, that, that, is, that is our evidence that he's revealing his character and his story through us to a lost and dying world. So let's praise him. Let's praise him no matter what. If we can commit to this, we're going to see some good fruit. We really will. And of course, this encouragement, listen, this is intended for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ and we have, we have received salvation, we're walking in his will. And if you've not taken that step yet, you've got a lot more to be concerned about, to, to consider than just temporary adversity. Because we're all going to experience that here in this life. But apart from the salvation that we receive by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are still on a road that leads to eternal damnation instead of life. No matter how many good works we do, they're not enough to save us because God requires perfection and that's why he sent his son. Through his perfect life, his perfect sacrificial death and his resurrection, we can spend eternity with God. Do you believe this? If you do believe this, And it's your first time to believe this. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. And if he's given you that faith, it's time for you to confess Jesus as your Savior and as the Son of God and be baptized by immersion, as the Bible teaches. If you've already taken that step, you just know, I've been straying, I need help. Take this time during the invitation. Come forward, let us lay hands on you and pray for you. If you're just saying, you know what, I'm ready to, to join this church body. Thank, by God's grace, we had two couples join last week, which is really wonderful and encouraging. Um, you can do that too. But don't say no to the Holy Spirit. 